Live from Studio G at Goodman Law Group's headquarters, this is The Good Law Pod, a show that dives into your questions about all things HOA. Welcome to The Good Law Pod. This is Clint Goodman, and today we're really excited to talk about cats in community associations and in neighborhoods. I'm joined by Rachel Chrysler, who... We're very excited to have as a special guest because she is the end-all, say-all on feral cats and what we can do to address the problem. So without any further ado, Rachel, would you mind introducing yourself and let us know who you are and what you do? Great. Well, first, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm an assistant professor of shelter medicine at Midwestern University's College of Veterinary Medicine in Glendale. Uh, I'm a clinician researcher, which is to say I do some clinical work uh, when I'm training vet students, and uh, the rest of the time I uh, do research in the field of clinical epidemiology. Clinical epidemiology helps answer questions that support decision-making in a scientific way. So, for example, whether or not feeding bans are effective at reducing complaints regarding free-roaming cats. Got it. So Mm -hmm. you're the expert on whether feral cats are a problem and if feeding them is going to end up creating a bigger problem or? Well, that's kind of you to say. I, I certainly, it's something I, I spend a lot of time thinking about for sure. So are you familiar with what Gilbert uh, Council did in May of 2018? Uh, yes, I've seen the section six, seven, I think on, on feeding. So correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, in that the town council basically said that if you're going to feed cats, that's a violation of city quote. Well, the interesting thing is that it actually just refers to um, wild or feral animals on town-owned property or public right-of-way. So it doesn't keep you from feeding cats on your own private property, uh, but it, it would limit you um, uh, from feeding in any place that, that you don't own. So why did the town do that? Well, um, usually when we see feeding bans implemented, it's because somebody's been complaining about cats. So uh, certainly... Uh, it's reasonable to think that if we don't feed the cats, that maybe they would go away. Um, and certainly uh, when feeding bans have been implemented in other jurisdictions, that's something uh, I think that was their hope. Um, the, the trick is, though, that the feeding bans are very controversial and they're really difficult to enforce. And unfortunately, they don't really work. Why is that? Well, because I, I would think I'm not an expert. <laughs> I just think, hey, if I don't feed the cats, they're not going to come to my house and they're going to get they're going to go find somewhere else where they can't eat. Yeah, well, um, we, we generally, again, they're they're. They're meant to limit the population, uh, but in our urban and suburban environments, there's lots and lots of different um, places the cats can be getting food. Uh, and actually, studies have shown that cat population density in these environments is not determined by people deliberately feeding them. Uh, the good news is that doesn't that means that cats won't starve to death. So if you stop feeding them, they are going to be just fine. They might have to work a little harder um, and... Uh, that might be annoying because they're going to come around and they're going to um, dig through your garbage. They're going to maybe uh, use all their cat charm to to try to lure you into feeding them, depending on how social they are. Um, but they, so if you like cats, the good news is they won't starve. Um, however, the bad news, if you don't like cats, that the feeding bands don't keep them um, from coming around just because they're so well adapted to living with us and living in our environment, and they're and they're quite clever about keeping themselves fed. Um, one more thing I'd say is a, uh, is a problem with the feeding bans is they do prevent the implementation of programs that actually do help limit the population uh, and, and mitigate some of the main issues that people have when they complain about free-roaming cats. So in your opinion, what are some of those 
programs that can be offered to help reduce or eliminate the problem? Well, uh, certainly one of the ones we think about the most commonly is something called um, trap-neuter-return. And before I tell you a little bit more about that, I'd, I just want to make a quick note that truly feral cats are only a portion of the cats that we see outdoors. So generally, we, we, try, we call them community cats because they're a, a mix. They're people's indoor-outdoor pets, cats that are sort of loosely and collectively owned. Um, sometimes they call those porch cats. <laughs> you know, five or six p- different people feed them, but no one really owns them. Um, they're lost pet cats. And then there's, there's the cats that were born outside and never socialized to humans. And that's, I think, what we think about when we think of these feral cats. But really, it's a, it's a really mixed population. So this mixed population, have you, well, let me take a step back here. Um, what are some of the programs that you're aware of to deal with an cat population problem? Well, certainly the best known is something called trap, neuter, return. Uh, or TNR, or Trap, Neuter, Vaccinate, Return, TNVR. Uh, They're the same thing. We just sometimes like to stick the V in there to emphasize the fact that these cats are being vaccinated against rabies, which is good news if you're a human. Um, So these programs basically uh, trap the cats uh, where they're living in their outdoor home. They surgically sterilize them. They vaccinate them um, against rabies and often also against some uh, cat-specific diseases. uh, And then they return them to their outdoor home. So that's good because a lot of times we're returning someone's pet cat or returning someone's lost cat, and they're much, much more likely to get their way home if they are dropped off back in the neighborhood they came from rather than um, kidnapped off to the shelter because a lot of times, by the time people start looking for them, um, they're, they're not there anymore. So, um, so this is nice uh, for, for people who um, like cats. It also takes away a lot of the things we don't like about community cats. So we don't like it when they fight. We don't like it when they caterwaul. We don't like it when they have their kittens all over the place. We really don't like it when they spray. And we really don't like that smell of male cat urine. So um, sterilizing them takes away all of these things that I don't think anyone really cares for. Um, And uh, it does reduce the population over time, although... Uh, that does take time and sort of a commitment to to uh, making making sure that that outcome occurs. So speaking of the commitment, this is run by, these are city-run programs, right? Or county-run programs? Well, it's interesting that you say that. Uh, actually, most of these programs started in the community. So you may have noticed people are very passionate about cats. Uh, <laughs> so a lot of times these were started by private um, people either uh, doing the trapping and paying for the surgeries themselves or um, a nonprofit that was looking for the same end. But actually, municipalities are starting more and more to support these because it turns out it's cheaper to pick them up, fix them, return them than it is to pick them up, impound them, hold them for some period of time, euthanize them, and then dispose of the body. Mm. So, um, so if you're just looking at the dollars and cents, it can actually make quite a lot of sense depending on... Um, your, your shelter's capacity to do this. And the other good thing about this is that it has a huge impact on our, our shelters and our communities. Uh, more and more, the public is demanding a humane community where we only euthanize animals that are suffering or a true danger to people. And so if we don't take these cats into our shelters, um, and many of these cats, if they're not social, don't have a realistic live outcome, uh, we don't have to kill them anymore, which is which is really good. Um, we take them back, and again, they're, they're, they're making a pretty good living for themselves outside. We're not killing people's pet cats anymore. We're not killing people's porch cats. And that means that we have resources to put towards animals that have no other place to be. 
They have no other um, alternatives. And so we can take much better care of them and save people money. So if somebody has a concern about a bunch of feral cats in their neighborhood, what do they do? They just contact the city and make a complaint. And then the city goes out and inspects to see if there's a true problem. And if there is a problem at that point, they decide to to do a roundup. Is that how that works? Well, um, it really depends on the city. So uh, for the, probably the most common scenario is that if you called up and said, hey, I've got a bunch of cats hanging around my backyard. Uh, I, I don't I don't like this. Uh, they will say, hey. Um, we have traps that we can we can uh, lend to you. We have organizations that that work and, and do this work. Let's get you in touch with that. It would be a rare municipality that would actually come out and trap your cats for you. Um, so, but that said, a lot of times you were to show up then at the shelter with cats in traps. Again, many shelters would be able to provide that surgery, provide the vaccination, and then um, either turn them back to you to take back home or actually even drive them back themselves. So if I am a manager for a condominium or an apartment complex, I can hire a third party to come out and capture the trap or set traps or whatever it's going to be humanely. And then I can drive over to or or the vendor can drive over to the shelter and they then vaccinate, fix and then give the cats back for us to release. Or is that what the city does? Well, again, it really depends on uh, mm-hmm. the municipality. I would say here in Arizona, we're really lucky to have an organization called ADLA, and they um, will help provide trapping expertise. They help provide traps. They help to uh, connect folks to these programs that are doing the sterilization. And so um, I, I, we've got a really great resource here. They've been doing it for years and years. And uh, so if you go to adlaz.org, you can uh, learn a lot more about uh, what they can offer the community. Perfect. And what does ADLA stand for? Animal Defense League of Arizona. Perfect. And so they can give a manager or me or you or anyone else advice on what to do with this issue. Absolutely. In a loving and humane way. In a loving and humane way. Perfect. Um, So we talked about the trap, vaccinate, euthanize or not euthanize route but is there are there any cities that actually do implement euthanization still um well certainly unfortunately that is the case and i would say unfortunately uh because again even if you don't like cats very much uh you want to make sure that your tax dollars are going towards an effective program and so uh trap and euthanize was something that was done for decades and decades and clearly we have not yet run out of feral cats uh so it you know, we, these programs, even the trap and euthanize, only reach a tiny number of, of, of cats. Uh, we estimate, um, you know, even um, maybe 1% to 3%. And it does nothing to change the population dynamics, but it has an incredibly, incredibly detrimental effect on the shelters, people who work for the shelters, and people in the community. Because those cats have no realistic life outcome. So, they, again, they're, they're euthanized. And, uh, and this is really, really terribly impacts the the people working in the shelters. All these resources are going into an ineffective program. We're certainly never going to eliminate feral cats. Uh, Even the only places we've ever eliminated uh, feral cats have been tiny islands. It's taken decades and millions of dollars. And that's will never happen in, let's say, a, a place like Gilbert or Phoenix or Arizona. We don't have the money. We don't have the political willpower. And we I don't even know if we have the technology to do it. It's pretty much a nuke from space option. Sure. Um, so I, I, um, that's not something that, that I would ever recommend, um, even if you don't care for cats. So you're saying it's really only 1% to 3% of the cat population you could even reach through that program 
are there statistics or numbers under the new trap and release program? Um, how effective that program is when you compare it to the old archaic draconian approach? Well, I'm so glad you asked because this is actually one of the areas that I research. Um, and in fact, I've even seen, uh, I just published a paper uh, that covers actually a homeowners association. And this homeowners association uh, implemented a trap neuter return program way back, uh, actually in the 90s. And uh, the the Homeowners Association sponsored not only the surgeries, but even the, the feeding program. They paid for a professional caretaker who kept very good statistics. And indeed, we saw that the cat population decreased over time uh, over 50%, um, and uh, that was done without having to euthanize any un, uh, any cats that weren't uh, unhealthy. So um, there was a very successful uh, program it continues on uh, something the homeowners association is very very proud of, and uh, and they're actually um, they're pretty famous. They're the uh, Ocean Reef uh, Homeowners Association in Florida, and their program is called Orcat. Orcat. Mm-hmm. And they started that you said 15 years ago. Is that right, or is that a little bit more than that? Uh, 20 years, 30 yeah. years. <laughs> Sorry. The 90s. In the 90s. <laughs> it's about 23 years. Okay. I think of the 90s <laughs> <is> just yesterday. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> so that is an effective program. Are they kind of the seminal case where they implemented this in the 90s and everyone started thinking, wait, maybe our program is not as effective as this. And so let's give this trap and release program a shot. Well, they're certainly uh, one of the longest-running and best-known programs, uh, but what they do is, is, not u- is not unique and has been replicated many other places. Uh, and, and again, we show a similar decline in population. Part of the trick is that the cats actually get healthier. When that happens, they live longer. So even though... Um, so sometimes our, the decrease that we see in the population is just not as dramatic because our, our healthy cats are living um, several years longer than they would have otherwise, and, uh, and that does increase the population at least temporarily. So sometimes people get these things started and they're like, oh my goodness, we have <laughs> just as many cats as we had before, maybe even a little bit of a bump, but um, it's because we've made the cats healthier and again, less likely to, to, tr- to bother people, less likely to uh, do all these things that, that we don't care for when uh, when they're done. So in that community, did the, was the caretaker a resident or was it uh, somebody that fed the cats at a clubhouse or do you, know, do you have any of those details? I do have all of these details. It sounds like you're very interested in this paper. Uh- <laughs> the reason why is because I could just imagine that if, you know, if I'm going to feed a bunch of cats, if I live in a community, naturally those cats are going to gravitate towards my area and I, the neighbors surrounding me would notice the cat population much more so than, let's say, people that live four streets down from me. Well, so the actually, one of the nice things, this was, again, a professional caretaker. It was a paid position, um, and the feeding stations were placed very, very, very deliberately. So uh, they were placed in areas where um, it decreased the potential for um, cat homeowner conflict, um, and they and the number was optimized so that only a small number of cats, maybe four to six cats, were associated with each feeding station, and that helped to um, keep them a little bit more subtle. Also, the feeding stations were placed away from environmentally sensitive areas, which is very very important because um, there's. There's feeding, and then there's sort of responsible feeding and and less responsible feeding. So this is a very good example of um, you know uh, folks really taking the time to be very thoughtful and very deliberate about the placement of the feeding stations, which I think is 
a really key uh, component of the program success. So if I have somebody that wants to talk to an expert on where to place feeding stations, who would they talk to? Well, I suppose they could talk to me. <laughs> I'm, I'm not the only one, but I, I'm the, the first one who comes to mind. <laughs> Perfect. So would you mind, you haven't given us your contact information yet, but I'll post that with Perfect. the show notes. In your research on, on that study, when they would set out these feed boxes throughout the community, wouldn't they, it would seem to me as just a lay person that that might attract other cats from other areas to congregate in their community, thereby increasing the cat population. And you're telling me that that didn't actually happen. There was an actual decrease in the population. Yes, there was definitely a decrease in the population, and uh, that did work well. Um, so some things that you can do to, again, we talked a little bit about feeding responsibly. So, um, again, this is a, this, they definitely were feeding responsibly. And what that meant was they only put out enough food that could be eaten in one sitting. They came by at the same day, uh, excuse me, the same time every day. So the cats knew when to come. So they were all kind of hanging out there. Uh, they ate their meal and then they dispersed. And that was also one of the reasons that the caretaker could know who was there. And then more importantly, who the new guy was. So we could make sure that that newcomer was sterilized before they started sort of the, the process all over again. Um, so... Uh, other responsible feeding strategies would include just using dry food. Uh, the wet food tends to attract insects and um, f actually feeding during the day. So this is really important because some of the uh, issues that we have with less responsible feeding is that it could attract animals we don't want. So other wildlife. Um, so, but most of that wildlife tends to be nocturnal. So we can feed sort of a single meal uh, during the day using a food not attractive to insects, it can really minimize the impact that uh, the feeding has on uh, the general, um, you know, neighbors. Uh, also, of course, uh, hopefully it would go without saying, but don't leave trash. Um, you want to be a good neighbor. And so if you, um, and again, don't do large, large meals. You, It's much better to do smaller meals, um, you know, spaced out. And then the cats tend to be quite invisible, except for when they show up for their feeding time. Interesting. Tying it back to Arizona, um, you know, Florida, that's an excellent case study. For us in Arizona, we've talked about what a manager or what I or anyone else can do if they have questions. They can contact you or they can go to the website. Uh, I think there's actually a statute, isn't there, that, can, that talks about this a little bit? That's true. Uh, Arizona is very progressive in that there is actually a statute, um, SB 1198, that supports uh, return to field. Uh, so that's a really neat thing, and it's something I'm really proud uh, about uh, to be to be from Arizona with the statute. And basically, all that says is that uh, any uh, impounded cat that's eligible for a sterilization program, um, so basically, it has to be healthy, uh, it has to be from the outdoors, it has to have no identification, uh, and and have its claws. Uh, then we we do explicitly say that those cats can be sterilized, vaccinated, and returned from where they came from. Interesting. So, you know, I've got people that call me all the time saying, hey, what do we do about our cat issues? And sometimes it's people that love cats, but other times it's just a manager who's received tons of complaints from homeowners. What are your recommendations on uh, for, for, to that manager to, or to that director that sits on their HOA board? Well, I think first we need to accept the, that community cats occupy a unique niche in our communities. Uh, they belong to a companion animal species, and that means that a lot of people are going to have really strong feelings about them. 
Um, but in a lot of ways, they're actually more similar to wildlife. Uh, so again, we, we've talked about that this population is kind of a mix of people's indoor-outdoor pets, community-owned pets, lost pets, and truly feral animals. Um, and so usually when we see an animal belonging to a companion animal species and we see them outside, we feel like we have to do something. Um, and in, in the case of these cats, a lot of times that means kidnapping them and uh, taking them away from their outdoor home and taking them to a shelter. Um, and so unfortunately, that's just not again, a good thing for, for the cats. And I, and I, and it's not a good thing for the people either. People more and more want, it's very important to be in a humane community, again, that's not euthanizing healthy animals um, in, in our shelters. And so I think that, you know, probably this, this poor community managers, you know, trying to do their job. They don't want uh, strife. They don't want um, complaints from their um, folks in their community. But we do have to recognize that this is a very, um, it's a very complicated situation. Uh, there's uh, all sorts of um, uh, sociological, economical, biological, and ecological issues, and um, which is to say there's never going to be a simple or a perfect answer. Um, so what I, would ex- what I would hope to say to, the, to this person uh, would be, hey, let's help minimize the things that are causing the complaints. Uh, so if it's the numbers of cats, let's go ahead and get them sterilized before they make more. If it's the caterwauling and people finding litters of kittens or even sadly sometimes suffering kittens, um, you know, again, we can, we can fix them. Um, if people are, are worried, you know, they don't like this <laughs> being their house being sprayed on, we can fix that too. Um, and a lot of it, though, is just coming to terms with the fact that uh, the animals are in the community uh, and we're going to have to uh, work just like we do um, to prevent our houses becoming, uh, having scorpions in them, like, uh, rabbits coming and eating all of our plants. Uh, this is just going to be one of these things that you can do some things to reduce, uh, the, they're impinging upon your space, but, uh, you can't wish them away. You can't, there's not a simple, easy solution where you can just make them go away. Uh, cause I can promise you if there's cats there now, there's a pretty good reason for it. And you will have at the very least new cats later. So, um, you know, it's working to, um, making sure there's less sources of um, unintentional food uh, so that they're not going through your garbage, uh, making sure that there's not harborage. uh, And that's basically any place a cat likes to hang out. So uh, if people have um, junk in their front yards or they have um, sort of hollowed out trees, these are attractive areas to cats to hang out in. So you want to go ahead and make sure that you've eliminated those. If you have a female cat, um, make sure she's fixed. She will bring uh, she will bring male cats around. If even if she lives inside, um, they're going to be trying to, to to lure her out of, of your home. So uh, make sure your female cats are fixed. Uh, there's cat deterrence similar to what's available for wildlife that you don't want coming around, like birds. And I know it can feel really unfair that you have to change your behavior because of these cats, right? Who's the who's the boss here? You or the cats? But we already do this all of the time for other. Uh, forms of wildlife. Um, I, I myself have replaced many a plant with uh, a, ra- a a plant less tasty to rabbits, um, and I sure wish I could make a law that outlawed those rabbits, um, made it illegal for them to eat my plants, but so far that has not worked, unfortunately. Interesting. So Rachel, do you have any parting words for me and, and our audience today? Uh, well, I just wanted to say, I think in regards specifically to the to, to feeding bans, we really shouldn't attempt to legislate against human kindness. I think that that's just not going to be successful. People want to 
be kind. They want to be humane. They want to do the right things for, um, you know, creatures and, and these cats. And it's, I just don't think you can ever prohibit that. You can drive it underground. You can, you know, unfortunately, a ban will act, probably encourage less responsible feeding. So people are going to dump large quantities and run. They're going to do it at night. Uh, you know, they're going to do it in less optimal areas where they think they can do it secretly. But you're never going to stop it by making something that people are motivated to do from the deepest, um, kindest parts of them. Uh, you, you just can't make it illegal. Great stuff. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for coming and joining us today. We really appreciate it. Sure. Great. Well, thank you for having me. 